Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
All right, that is most of, but not all of, Hell You Tom Bout. Uh, that is a, a relatively new song, and it's uh, produced uh, and created by Janelle, Janelle Monet and this kind of Wonderland collective uh, that she works with. It's being talked about by some people as really kind of a defining song about this particular moment, a defining song for the Black Lives Movement. I mean, we can talk about whether that's true or not uh, as we go along here today. There's an awful lot of other art that's being created in that way, but it's it's sort of a fulcrum, uh, a way for us to get into a conversation about protest music. Something that we, it's a topic we've um, talked about before, we've approached before in other ways, either working with hip-hop artists uh, on, here on the show, or we did a live thing about uh, music and social change earlier this year. But we, it, once again, we do feel as though we're uh, in a moment and at a crossroads, and music is probably going to be a part of it, because it always is. So today in studio, we're very very excited to have with us uh, Dr. Anthony Rauschi, Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology and Music Theory at the University of Hartford, Hugh Blumenfeld, longtime friend of mine, longtime uh, visitor to my various radio shows, singer-songwriter who has uh, written and performed protest music uh, a lot over the years. Uh, Bishop John Selders, a Hartford clergyman, is with us. He just completed a trip called All Roads Lead to Ferguson as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and joining us by phone, Salamisha Tillett, a professor, associate professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, recently published the article, The Return of the Protest Song, uh, on uh, the Time.com website, and maybe in Time Magazine, too. I'm not sure. Don't get the print version anymore. So uh, we got a lot of good guests. We've got a lot of ground we want to cover here. But we do want to hear from you, too, particularly maybe even if that song struck you a certain way. I will be honest and tell you I cannot listen to that song without my eyes tearing up. I, I mean, I've never gotten through it that way. I don't know why that is. Uh, although I, we've got ethnomusicologists and all kinds of other smart people here who maybe can explain to me why that is. Uh, but how did it affect you? Tweet us, uh, tweet our tweet master Greg Hill at WNPR column as we go. Tony Rashi, I'm gonna, I am going to begin with you. Um, protest songs have been along around since there has been music, probably, and since there has been protest, which is sort of forever. Uh, you know, they vary, they differ, they change stylistically depending on the genre uh, that they're in and the, the moment. But I would assume they often do have some familiar elements. Listening to Janelle Monet and Wonderland, what do you hear that's sort of structurally part uh, of, uh, or sort of a familiar idiom anyway, for, for protest music? Well, the first thing that strikes me overall is that I want to say wow to the song because it's amazingly powerful. And it's, as I listened to it, I thought it used a simple uh, call and response format, which was sort of a uh, not immediate call and response, but it was structured so that you'd have the response to the call the name. And it focuses on the name. It becomes a kind of litany, a religious, a spiritual invocation of the thing that we most typically think of as the most powerful part of our identity, our name. Mm -hmm. And the repetition and the power of that, um, in a, you know, using a simple format and really focusing on, the, on just a simple bit of material I think that's where a lot of protest music gains its power, the simplicity and the clarity, because it speaks immediately to any number of people. Um, it can resonate, I think, with uh, songwriters and performers, and they can develop it in a variety of ways. So I think that, that aspect of it is, is really very important, the simplicity, the clarity, um, and the immediacy that, that really uh, I heard in this as I say, I think of it as very spiritual, mm -hmm. a litany. 
So, um, uh, and I want to hear um, a little bit more about sort of the, the nature of the song and the way that it kind of fits into this moment from all of our guests. Um, before we do that, though, Hugh, one of the things that I noticed there, too, and I think John Selders and I had a very similar reaction, particularly to the guy who says um, Amadou Diallo's name uh, mm-hmm. near the end. Uh, it's one of the reasons I played as much of the song that I did. I really wanted to get to that part. I mean, first of all, all through the song, and others have observed this, mics are popping, voices are breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, although this is, you know, I think a studio recording, it's not a studio recording in the in the um, usual sense. And uh, I would assume that's sort of part of this, right? You know, we think of whether we're thinking of Utah Phillips or, or this, you don't want um, a heartfelt message to sound too slick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely had a live feeling to it, uh, underproduced, because in the in this in the heat of the moment, so it 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 projects that. The whole thing makes me think of uh, you know the long black wall and just the naming of names, which has become a way of protesting since the uh, Vietnam Memorial came up. At least I'm not sure about mm-hmm. before that, but and then it, it you know then it makes you think that there's a war going on as well. Um, I was recently at the Holocaust Museum, and they are in the process of reading all the names of six million people. And uh, to see my son standing in this uh, kind of stone room that they have, just reading lists of names, it's it's just very powerful to recall these lives. Um, Salamisha Tillett, maybe you can say a little bit more about this song and about this moment. I mean, you did write about the return of the protest song. It does feel like we're in a moment that that, uh, could be nurtured by protest music and could nurture protest music. Is there something special about this song? Yeah, I mean, I actually think in addition to all of the kind of formal qualities that the other guests have been speaking about, uh, it really, I think, expresses some of the political um, debates that are actually happening within the Black Lives Matter movement and trying to reconcile them. So the Say Her Name um, line or hashtag or movement is in some ways a response to the ways in which black women and girls um, who've been killed by police officers have been left out of a kind of mainstream conversation or at least a mainstream understanding of what's going on right now. And so I think this song um, brilliantly uh, actually brings together a litany of names, but includes and deliberately includes and is inspired by the Say Her Name movement. So I think um, on a philosophical or at least a kind of political, ideological level, uh, this song really expresses uh, some of the contestation that's happening internally, but also a way of reimagining um, a movement that is both anti-racist and anti-sexist at the same time. And John Selders, another thing this song does, obviously, is it connects the moment to the history, to, uh, I mean, Diallo's case is one from about 1999, something like that. Uh, Emmett Till comes up, too, in the song, right? That this isn't uh, about one particular moment, it's about something else? That's right. And, and, and I would also say that when I listen to it, it harkens me back to Martha and the Vandellas uh, um, dancing in the streets. It, 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 uh, I think about James Brown, 67, 68, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. That, that protest music has a line, in, in particular in African-American uh, communities and in African-American music tradition, um, both popular and underground, that there is, there's always been a kind of uh, um, a sound and a voice that comes bellowing out from the street. I mean, I mean Sam Cooke, uh, uh, um, you know, his, his anthem of the civil rights movement, a change is going to come. I mean, th- those are songs that tr- historically or traditionally people don't think as pr- protest music, but in fact it is. It bellowed, it comes from a kind of soulful place. Um, so this song is just in that same tradition. And so I, I hear it immediately and I'm like, yes, here, our young people haven't forgot the tradition. 
The um, I want to come back to that too because I, I particularly before um, we lose um, Dr. Tillich because I think there's an interesting part of what you're saying right now. But I want to um, talk a little bit about how music functions within the world of protest. We've got a clip here from Bernice Johnson Reagan. She's, uh, of course, the founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock. Uh, This is an interview with Bill Moyers. I think they're uh, talking about this little light of mine. But she's talking about the way sound works in this context. So let's hear that right now. Sound is a way to extend the territory you can affect. So people can walk into you way before they can get close to your body. And certainly the communal singing that people do together is a way of announcing that we're here, that this is real. And so anybody who comes into that space, as long as you're singing, they cannot change. the air in that space. The song will maintain the air as your territory. And I've seen meetings where a sheriff has walked into a mass meeting and established the air. This is a sheriff everybody knows. And they're taking pictures or taking names and you just know your job is in trouble and blah, blah, blah. The only way people could take the space back was by starting a song. And inevitably, when police would walk into mass meetings, somebody would start a song. And then people would, like, join in. And, like, as people joined in, the air would change. So, um, John Selders... Um, I want to come back to you on this, too. So protest is scary to do sometimes in the way that she's talking about. Sometimes it gets scarier, too. Sometimes you experience physical pain. Um, One of the ways I think music has worked sometimes is to help people kind of even get their minds in a different place away from the fear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I can say this most uh, expressly. Um, uh, when we were in St. Louis and Ferguson just a few weeks ago, um, clergy action, um, we were in the downtown cathedral getting ready to head out to the, uh, the Department of Justice building. Um, this little light of mine started to ring forth, and it kind of summoned the spirit. Uh, and, and I'm not just talking in a, in a religious sense, although we were in a church and we were religious people. We were also getting ourselves prepared for, for the task of protesting. And I think what, what Bernice Reagan uh, is speaking about is that summoning of a presence that's, that's both communal and collective, but also kind of out of body and transcendent. So that, you know, whatever is going to happen, we are doing it together. We're singing together. We are a body together. And, and, and one of the unique ways that happens when we're in collective is music does that. It unifies us in a way that, that it quickly, in a way that you know, many other things in forms of gathering doesn't. So it seems to me that, um, Hugh, that when we talk about protest music, we're talking about a, a bunch of different things in a way. Um, sometimes it's functioning the way that John's talking about right now as a rallying cry for a bunch of people who are already kind of on the same page. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's, a, and it's an attempt. Um, and some of your songs, I think, fall into this category, maybe even to introduce people to a, to a set of ideas or a set of sentiments that, that, that people haven't necessarily mobilized about, right? Sometimes it's about trying to start a movement. 
Yeah, start a movement, change people's minds, but usually changing their hearts either at the same time or a little bit before as, as the way to open into it, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I do some music. I, I, I teach about music as an alternative medicine also and just the way um, music goes in through the ear and the first thing that it hits is, you know, the hippocampus, which is the center of memory, and then it, it goes immediately into the limbic system, which is the emotional system. And so it's, part of music's effect is so very direct uh, into that part of us that... Uh, and, and that mobilizes the body in, in you know, the autonomic nervous system, the things that we can't control, our breath, our, our heart rate, our, our, our pressure. And, and so music is able to get in there and be very physical very quickly. We should um, say that Hugh has followed this career pattern that's it's so familiar to most people now. It's almost kind of a cliche. He was a singer, songwriter, and folk singer for decades, and then he became a doctor, which, like, I mean, pretty much all of <laughs> all of them have done that now. Anyway, but I'm interested in how you know you, you hit the body first, and then you can you know, work on the mind. I think right. Well, and it's interesting the way she talks about that too. It's like you get to my music before you get to my body too. That mm-hmm. that in a way you're encountering me mm-hmm. before you can get to the physical. You're nodding about that. That's sort of part of this too, oh, right? Yes, yes. Well, because the end of, when the music is is happening, there is the unity, and there also for each individual. It's a kind of affirmation that he or she is is really part of something that is very meaningful and probably speaks to things that aren't necessarily stated in the song. I, I mean, when we talk about emotional response and and the sort of uh, the the impact that songs that music has on folks, it, it's very it's really impossible to say what is touching people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the words may be one thing, but on another level, people respond in. In, in unique ways, and that's the, the great power of it. Um, and it's true. You, when you put words and you put, extend them in the air, that's – even other cultures talk about this as a heightened speech. You give them great power and uh, not, the power is not always understood. Mm. It's known and is a, it's respected in other cultures, um, but uh, they, they still – you know want to con- make contact with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to put uh, Peter uh, on the air, and I'm hoping that I can get uh, uh, Professor Salamisha Tillett to uh, react to what he's talking about here. Hi, Peter. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on. Sure. I'd like to talk about an older protest album, uh, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? The whole album seems cohesive, and it's more, you know, starting a movement. Or, or he was. it was during the movement, but he was like explaining it to everyone, what's going on. You know, it's an interesting point. And um, so Salamisha Tillett, one of the things that I started thinking about as we were doing this show today is that you can, you know, you can sort of divide protest singers or political singers into kind of two groups. And one of them is the group of people who are already well-established stars with commercial careers. So that's Marvin Gaye. To a certain degree, it's Janelle Monet too, right? She's making a very different kind of music for most of her her career. And you've got, I mean, I've been driving around listening to D'Angelo's Black uh, American Messiah uh, CD all summer. (laughs) You know, so there's a guy who's, I don't know, he's like the Black Brian Wilson. He's not necessarily a super political singer, but this is a very political album. Lamar's uh, To Build a Butterfly, a super political album. Uh, even somebody like Bruce Springsteen with a very long connection to political music and folk music still established himself with all these great New Jersey songs about motorcycles and, and, and stuff like that. And then did American Skin 41 Shots about the Diallo case, which blew people's minds. Uh, so is, is that different from being 
you know, Utah Phillips or even Talib Kweli, who's just, you know, pretty much committed himself to, to a hip hop career that's super political, you know, and, and rarely not. Is it different from being somebody who makes their mark that way and gets defined that way as opposed to being a commercial artist who kind of comes down from Olympus and starts dealing with some of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's like three categories. So Bernice, um, you know, the clip that we listened to earlier in terms of the freedom songs, that's like one category of like artists that are in lockstep with the organizers and are using songs to recruit people to the movement. And then you have artists, like you're saying, like Talib Kweli, um, who, for the most part, are have very politicized careers. And then an artist like Marvin Gaye, cause actually, who gets politicized by the movement itself, right? Mm-hmm. So that uh, we can think of someone, yeah, I think of Janelle Monáe as uh, uh, always doing kind of political move, music, but that she wasn't always doing protest music. And mm-hmm. so what makes a protest song different than a political song or what makes a song um, in engaging in a, a political movement that's on the ground, that's in the streets? You know, how does that change an artist's consciousness? And I think with the Marvin Gaye example, it's so stunning because he really had to convince Barry Gordy that this album needed to be made, right? Motown um, had a more subtle um, uh, civil rights politics in terms of crossover appeal and doing Ed Sullivan, and and that was their politics. It was a kind of respectability politics, for lack of a better phrase. And then you have Marvin Gaye being radicalized by a generation um, of of activists and other artists, and then him feeling he has to make this album, and then it becomes, you know, a kind of musical soundscape for that a new generation of people coming up and, and, and in some ways being really disillusioned with all that's going on. So I think there's like a, you know, like you point out, you know, what's the difference between Talib Kweli's career and maybe someone uh, like Kenrick Lamar um, is that Talib would have been sacrificing much of his career to be a political voice, whereas Kenrick Lamar is coming of age in which there's a space and an opportunity to have a politicized voice um, be the voice of the of, of the era or of the age that we're in. All right. Well, since we have an actual real live protest singer uh, here and writer of protest songs, uh, Hugh Blumenfeld is here with us. As we um, wrap up this segment here, we're going to have him play. Um, we're going to hear uh, Hugh play several songs over the course of the show. Although this song you're going to do right now is kind of an adaptation. It's an adaptation. And uh, I was thinking about which, uh, you know, what's going on and tell me what, you, what, uh, what you're talking about, how what you're talking about. And uh, the idea that a, a protest song, especially trying to draw people in, is not telling you what to think, but asking a question. So here's a question. All right. As I was walking, I saw a sign there. And on that sign there, it said, no trespassing. And on the other side, it didn't say nothing. And which side are you on? Which side are you on? Well, come on, you good workers. Sad news I have to tell. They're trying to break the union and drag us straight to hell. Now Walker in Dane County, he's gone and made it law that none of his state workers can fight for the union anymore. And which side are you on? 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 Well, the court said, corporation, your money is your voice. 
So they bought the last election and they called it the people's choice. Now the fat cat takes nine slices and leaves just one piece of pie. Then he throws a big tea party and says, watch out for that union guy. And which side are you on? Which side are you on? Come on. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Well, the banks jacked up home prices by signing bogus loans. Now one hand takes our handouts while the other takes our homes to promote the general welfare is what the Constitution says. But the 1% are on the yacht and the 99 are on the res. And which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, man? Which side are you on? We occupied Afghanistan. We occupied Iraq. Now we're occupying Wall Street and we're gonna take it back. Now don't scab for the bosses and don't listen to their lies. Working folks ain't got a chance unless we organize. And which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Yeah, which side are you on? What you talking about? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Peace Poets doing I Can't Breathe. So one thing I wanted to get into a little bit here is we're talking about protest music today. We've got uh, just a, an all-star lineup to talk about protest music, kind of at a, move, a moment when there, when there is a need for it uh, and, uh, and a way of supplying that need. Uh, Dr. Anthony Rauschy is with us, uh, Associate professor, professor of Ethnomusicology and Music Theory at the University of Hartford. Hugh Blumenfeld, you just heard him singing as we went and uh, finished up the last segment. A singer, songwriter, doctor, uh, the usual, who has written and performed protest music, uh, Bishop John Selders, a Hartford clergyman who just uh, completed a trip called All Roads Lead to Ferguson as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Joining us by telephone is Dr. Salamisha Tillett, uh, Associate Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, recently published an article on the return of the protest song. So, John, I want to come over to you for a second because that's actually – you sort of – you took that song on the road recently, right? Yeah. We did. We did. Um, 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 the Peace Force joined us for this tour. We went to New York City, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, uh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and then on into St. Louis and Ferguson um, with young people, with some activists and, and some artists. Uh, Peter Yarrow joined us um, from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, it was a fairly all-star cast of characters. The Peace Force joined us for three of the dates. Um, um, we had a great time. Luke Nephew, uh, one of the co-founders of the Peace Ports, actually penned that song, and he's penned a number of tunes that they interweave in their activism, um, protesting, and performing. And um, I told Luke, um, um, a buddy of mine, and I had done a, a kind of gospel version of, of it, and he was, like, he was anxious to hear it. And, in fact, we did it 
um, both his version and and our version um, uh, during the tour. And um, again, it's the opportunity for us to kind of be in one space, um, uh, summoning a, a moment, and and then I added some verses to it. So I, I talk about the, they say uh, I can see, um, uh, I can hear my neighbor crying, I can't breathe. So I, you know, St. Louis and. Um, shameless plug. <laughs> uh, I I can see my neighbor lying out in the middle of the street. So I, you know, you know, you know. Again, these songs have the adaptability to be shifted and changed. I have a version of uh, whose side are you on? We call it, you know, whose side are you on? <laughs> uh, I'm on the freedom side. Um, so so these songs have this kind of adaptability in, in in the context of movement work and movement. Yeah, and so Tony, uh, that leads naturally into what I wanted to ask you about. So here's another difference here, which is that. You know, you really can't form a line around along a barricade and sing what's going on. You know, like Marvin Gaye can sing what's going on. And I I think I know all the words to Mercy, Mercy Me, but I could be wrong about that. But I can only do it singing along with Marvin Gaye. I can't just get up and sing Mercy, Mercy Me. So, But some of these songs, but with Hugh, we can certainly, Hugh will invite us to join in the chorus of the song that he just sang. And this is is an important part too, right? Oh, yes, because it's one thing to have a, a big group of people singing. But movements inevitably give rise to stars uh, in a variety of ways, spokespersons, uh, but performers. And so uh, someone who is addressing a particular cause really can become the focal point for the whole group. And so I think you have to have – you expect both uh, types of songs that the community can sing, that everybody can sing, some songs that usually are sung by a soloist. Um, there are certain types of things. Uh, you know, I don't think rap, for example, works well with a large group. <laughs> I've t- Get off by one beat and you got a problem. I've tried this with my <laughs> church choir and it did not work. It's good for one person, one very talented person who can bring it off. People can be drawn into it and sing a refrain or a repeating chorus or just a, ref- a, a, a simple one-line refrain. Uh, but you have both aspects and it does give... You know, it gives a kind of um, uh, focus for a movement because if you're not able to sing, let's say, or participate, you can hear that song. And then you that means that has great meaning and that person becomes uh, the icon. The song, the t- ideas of the song become part of the movement and become representative of, of what it's all about. Oh, actually, I should say that the last time we tackled this topic, we ended – we were in front of a live audience. So we did end with um, one of Hugh's uh, fellow former uh, Connecticut State Troubadours, uh, Laura Herskovich, uh, doing This Little Light of Mine with Self Suffice, uh, the hip-hop artist, rapping over it and the audience singing along. Uh-huh. So we got rap into it. But uh-huh. you're right. It's better if the rap comes from one person and the audience is all doing something else. Um, so, you know, Salamisha, one thing that you sort of alluded to in the past is uh, – earlier in the show – is – also, the kind of choices that artists have to make about whether to become political. And I think you begin your article in Time magazine talking about a moment when, you know, when Bob Dylan so connected to protest movements that he had already written a song about Emmett Till, for example, um, suddenly announced he just didn't want any part of this anymore. And meanwhile, you know, we have the reverse kind of happening here. I mean, I didn't think of D'Angelo as a particularly political artist. I really enjoyed the first two CDs. But I mean, American Messiah is obviously functioning on a very different level. And I, I don't know if you th- I'm sure you've thought a lot about like how do they decide what their responsibility is in a given moment? 
just for the hip hop heads and the the audience listening, I do think there are moments when certain rap, like you said, uh, choruses can be useful. So I remember protesting the war um, invasion of Iraq, and there's a song by Ludacris that's actually probably really sexist called uh, "I Won't." Uh, the 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 verse is "Move B, get out the way, get out the way," um, and people on the street were organizing and singing move bush get out the way so there are moments when like hip-hop actually is really useful and i think for a particular generation um you can take verses and transform them and make them part like this participatory song tradition but i do think with an artist like d'angelo what's interesting about that album is the kind of long prep i guess right so that he's been working on this seven album years for so for, so, for exactly seven years and then uh, they pushed the release date to align itself with um you know the rising street protests particularly um as we saw in december around you know like eric garner um and building obviously on trayvon martin and, and michael brown so it's almost like you know he's going through this kind of political consciousness changing at the same moment that the nation is going on going through it as well and so the album seems perfectly timed even though he had been working on it for so long i do think d'angelo's repertoire is interesting because he hasn't not been, and this is the question, like what's a protest song versus a political yeah. artist? Like I think of him as someone who was part of like the neo-soul hip-hop movement where you have people like Talib Kweli or The Roots or Erykah Badu really doing really um, quite experimental um, musical songs. As I mean, they're engaged in an experimental musical tradition as well as what we think of kind of as like a post-black nationalist message. And so D'Angelo was very much part of that. And yet I think we may read his music as as primarily R&B or neo-soul without a particular political message. But I always thought of him as a political artist. It's just that um, this is so explicit because there's actually a movement building that corresponds. And I think uh, the fact that there's so many messiahs also speaks to the fact that this this movement, as we see it, is really conscious about not having a single leader or a single model, but building on um, what they think of as like an Ella Baker f- philosophical tradition of leaderful and not leader, a single leader or leaderless. So that's the the rhetoric of the young organizers that were leaderful movement. And I think his idea of multiple messiahs, I think, is is pretty brilliantly timed and maybe what he was also thinking as well. By the way, it's just an awesome uh, album, oh, I mean, yeah, just like on yeah. every possible level. I mean, he really is the Black Brian Wilson in a certain way. So, Misha, I also just wanted to say that you know one thing we haven't said is there's a certain level of self-conscious I- intent in all this, and uh, a lot of it actually tracks back to um, a message p- posted by Questlove. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this, Questlove, drummer uh, for, for The Roots. Kind of a mm-hmm. call to arms, right? Yeah, I mean, he he was summoning the past, and so he was asking where are artists who are like Bob Dylan, Nina Simone, or even Public Enemy, um, where are they today? What, what's the role of the artist, and what's the role of the artist in line with a political movement? And I think Questlove and the Roots are you know, part of this D'Angelo tradition in which you have artists always engaging in a kind of political message, but maybe uh, there wasn't the kind of organizing behind the scenes or on the streets that aligned itself with the message. Hip hop is a really interesting cultural political movement. And yet we didn't necessarily, our generation didn't have a formidable uh, movement quite the same as what we're seeing right now. So I think Questlove um, is demanding artists who are political um, and who are pop uh, to be 
part of the moment that they're in and, and really use their music and their art to respond to the crises of inequality. And, you know, part of it's this is like in terms of racial inequality, but I do think artists have been, you know, responding to different political conditions, right? You have um, Green Day with American Idiot responding to the invasion of Iraq, and you have someone like Lady Gaga um, having the song Born This Way building on an earlier kind of um, gay liberation ideology, but using her song to align itself with the marriage equality movement. So it's not as if we haven't been having um, artists using their music for political purposes, but I think because, again, um, we're seeing such deep organizing on the streets right now around racial injustice and the artists themselves, new artists are stepping up and stepping into new roles. It's pretty exciting. All right. And as we um, finish up this segment, uh, I want to do one thing first, but uh, Hugh's going to give us uh, an example of exactly what you're talking about, about how political moments um, kind of seize artists and they feel the need to express themselves a certain way. Before we do that, though, Hugh, uh, and we'll take you back to the time of American Idiot, although that's not really the song he's going to sing, although there are some parallels, as you will see. But before we do that, Tony, one thing I wanted to mention, and uh, some of the examples that I have of this are, are courtesy of uh, Hugh's friend Ed McCune. Um, of, I mean, there's also the example of songs that were so incredibly popular that people didn't know they were political or forgot they were political. So whether that's Springsteen's Born in the USA or Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds or what else did Ed come up with? The Obico uh, by Peter Gabriel, um, a certain uh, song by NWA whose name I can't say on the air. Uh, but that's another thing you could probably chant along the barricades <laughs> under certain circumstances. I think Bishop Selders would insist that you pick a different word. Um, Fortunate Son, I mean, how many people, you know, uh, and I mean, famously, Ronald Reagan tried to use Born in the USA as a campaign song, mm-hmm. clearly not understanding at all what the song was about. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but that's sort of typical, right, that a song has a musical power and, and people wind up singing words that they're not even aware of what they're saying. Oh, sure, sure. This is, and this has gone on for generations, that songs are very popular. Uh, They're associated with a a historical movement or some uh, political or social event, and the song continues to live. Of course, the the understanding of the discrete events of the time get lost. People forget. And also the song, as it, in, in folk music tradition, as it continues, inevitably goes through some kinds of changes. Uh, verses are left out. Uh, references change. Um, it's maybe, in a sense, brought up to date according to who's ever performing it. So the song takes on a life of its own. I mean, this is true. It became also uh, part of the fabric of classical music. We don't think of protest music in classical music, but uh, there is a history of it being done in opera and in Baroque keyboard music from France and other areas. Right. Well, actually, our, our last forum about this, we had Neely Bruce, the composer oh, who sure. who uh, has set the Bill of Rights uh, to music and stuff like that. So, Hugh, uh, um, Salamisha, I think at one point was talking about – or somebody was talking about protesting the war in Iraq, <laughs> which is kind of – I mean, I don't know. You and I kind of lived through this together and it wasn't always the easiest thing to do because no, you know, we, the country had been through 9-11. People were kind of motivated uh, in a certain way and uh, – I, I actually got blacklisted around that time. Not by me. Not by you. No. Who, I, who, do you really got blacklisted? Sort of in yeah, – yeah. But that's another story. But but, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the ways that political music gets around that is to kind of disguise the songs. A lot of a lot of African American spirituals r- go that route. But so I, I tried to disguise this. I, I was invited to sing for the uh, historical society, and it was a Revolutionary War kind of thing. So this is my uh, American idiot version. Historians say he wasn't the brightest bulb. All he had, he had by birth, including the highest office. 
in the greatest land on earth. Despite the finest education, he could barely speak a word. Some folks called him Mad King George, some called him George Third. Well, he fought him against Muslims, and he fought against the terror. And the policies of Pitt turned out to be a mortal error. He pawned the poor off on the church. By prayer, they could be cured. Some folks called him Mad King George, some called him George Third. Now, patriots here were loyal and defended him at first. But things soon went from good to bad, and then from bad to worse. With endless wars and crippling debt, their indignation stirred. Well, some folks called him Mad King George, some called him George Third. No factories and mills spewed out more dark clouds of pollution. No cities had more spies or charged more poets with sedition. As a tyrant in our history books, his memory is interred. Well, some folks called him Mad King George, some called him George Third. Yeah, George William Frederick has a dubious claim to fame. I wonder if they called him W just to use his middle name. Well, they say history repeats itself, but it would be absurd to think that there could ever be another George Third. Yeah, they say history repeats itself, but it would be absurd to think that there could ever be another George Third. sink is our sink. There is only one sink for all of us to use in this restroom. And we are a multitude, so don't you think it's so rude to use it for applying your perfume? So move away from that sink. Yeah, this sink is everybody's sink. Maybe I need a bigger issue. Today's show was produced by Allison Ehrenreich, Lydia Brown, and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Lead Belly. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff song protesting rising Chardonnay prices, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. You know, I haven't made her write a song for a long time. And the thing about Kion's songs is a lot of them are actually really good, you know, <laughs> and they're quite singable. Was there one about squash? There was something about one that was like about squash or something that I wound up singing for a long time. All right, so we're talking about protest music. Uh, we are saying goodbye now to the wonderful uh, Salamisha Tillich. She has to go, but uh, still with us. We've got uh, Hugh Blumenfeld, a singer, songwriter, MD, uh, Bishop John Selders, a clergyman here in Hartford and part of the All Roads Lead to Ferguson trip, and, um, and also with us, uh, Tony Rauchy, uh, associate professor of of ethnomusicology and music theory at the University of Hartford. I've got a call coming in. It's Frank from Southerton. Hi, Frank. You're on the air. I'd like to offer a couple of songs. Um, one, Richie Havens from Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix, Machine Gun. 
and right. a whole bunch on uh, the Broadway musical Hair. Right. So you're dating yourself a little bit here, but I mean, it kind of leads into a, a point, John, that I know that you wanted to make. So uh, because I may have framed it a little bit the wrong way, too. It's kind of like, yes, you have an established uh, commercial career, whether you're Prince uh, or uh, D'Angelo or Aretha Franklin or James Brown or um, and then or Marvin Gaye, and then you get political. But you sort of see it a slightly different way, right? Yeah, I see it as it is. It is germane to where you are and your social location. Yeah, I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter. I'm a performer. But I am also a part of a, a community and a tradition. So that the James Brown, you know, say a lot. I'm black and I'm proud. Came out of his own narrative. He was on the street. Too, he was protesting too. Uh, Aretha Franklin leading, you know, leading the movement, and 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 Martin King asking her to sing, or or or, or Mahalia Jackson in, in back in those days. They were in the community too. Um, uh, and I will also say Curtis Mayfield is another one. Mm-hmm. I'm dating myself now. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, who 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 both was uh, uh, or, or or even uh, um, Shaft and and Isaac Hayes. I mean, they were those songs. And that music of that era were, were also kind of embedded in the, the community. And so it, it rises. And I don't think that dichotomy above choosing to be political now that I'm an established artist or, or choosing to be, you know, uh, with the people uh, is quite the same as I'm, I'm writing, I am connecting, I'm a part of this whole movement, my own self. And, yeah, I, I happen to be an artist, established or not, uh, named or known or not, but that this music is coming out of my own self sense of what I'm seeing and experiencing in my own life and in my own community. And uh, I want to leave a little time to finish up with one of uh, Hugh's songs. But, um, but Tony, the, you know, another point that, that sort of runs through all this is that music has so many different purposes and we have so many ways that we use it. So for a lot of people, m- music is, you know, to go back to Hugh's um, uh, anatomical uh, theories, you know, it's supposed to release like dopamine and oxytocin and all these really nice hormones in our brains, not get us all upset about something, at least for some people. Mm. They may see it that way. I mean, James Brown was able to bring people along with him because they already loved his music so much anyway. He didn't really lose too much ground with people. But there is, there, there always will be some pushback, right? Like, I just want to be happy with music. I oh, yes, yes. I think for a lot of folks, I always ask this question of, to my students, so what, what is music? And 99% of the time, people will think of the emotional response, mm. the subjective response, the idea that music carries forth ideas uh, intellectual positions or social positions, political positions, is somewhat secondary, I think. They think of it as affecting them mm. and also ways that it can affect others as well. So, yes, music, it functions on all, num- all manner of levels um, for, uh, in, for any number of people at the same time. Mm. The complexity is always there. Yeah, it's, I, you can feel it in the Springsteen crowd. Half the Springsteen yeah. crowd does not want to be confronted, yeah. you know, with a lot of political messages. They get mad at them. Yeah. They want to wave their brewskis around and, and sing "Born to Run" with them, not sure. some Pete Seeger tune. So, you, uh, as we end up here, we'd like to end up with uh, one of your songs. Uh, we won't have uh, enough time to hear the whole thing, but tell us about the song and then get it going for us. Yeah, well, just you know, to add on to this last part of the, the discussion, just music is so much part of our identity. It's an, interesting to me in, in certain. Uh, times in history, just playing music was a political act. So in places like Ireland, the harp was illegal 
in, in Scotland, it was illegal to own bagpipes. You know, these are capital crimes. And African-Americans come here, they took the drums, and you weren't allowed to have drums. So just using musical expression itself became political. And, uh, and African-American music in our culture in the 20th century was taboo to even have it on the radio until, like, the 50s, and some, some Jewish DJ starts putting it on the air, and it's like, wow, this is just subversive just on the face of it. So this is, uh, you know, today's the anniversary of, of Katrina hitting New Orleans, and I thought I'd play this song called Bring Stones. Bring stones Bring stones to the river If they weigh your pockets down Bring stones to the river, skip them on the water, circles of light and ripples on the other shore. Bring stones. Mm-hmm. Oh, bring stones. Bring stones to the river. Rain is hard and cold. 